And I actually walked all the way up without any support. Praise God. <laughs> it really is amazing to us. Um, the text that I'll be opening with you this morning is one that I actually preached here about 20 months ago. It's not the same sermon today. Uh, but at that time, we were happy to be here and yet had no thought that we might be able to move to this area. The Lord opened that up just four months ago or so, and so we moved to Williamsburg. He's provided for us wonderfully, and we are really happy to be here, not as guests, but as part of this body now. If you would turn with me or it'll be on the screen, but if you have a Bible there before you, if you'd turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll begin the reading at verse 15, and um, just read through the first half or so of verse 19 this morning. The Word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Just to give you a heads up, if you, and I doubt that any of think this, but if you think maybe you've been moving slowly through the book of Galatians, my aim in the next three weeks is to take the three phrases of verses 18 and the first half of 19 and take those apart. So this morning we have about six words we're going to work with. That should make it feel like when Kevin comes back, he's just flying through the text. A little over a year ago, I took a trip to Florida, my wife and I did. And uh, it was one of the biggest and most dangerous mistakes I've ever made in my life. Uh, not the trip to Florida. Not the trip to Florida. Um, but we went and visited some friends while we were there. Uh, several different couples we've known for years, and it was delightful. That was not the mistake. And one of our friends took us, we're getting to the point here, folks. One of our friends took us to a gator, alligator preserve. Okay. And at that time, I was still having a good deal of difficulty walking, and we had walked most of the loop around this preserve. It seemed like forever. It was probably only 45 or 50 minutes. 
But we kept encountering people coming the other direction. Of course, they could have started the loop at the other end, so, but their explanation for the fact that they were coming back is that there was a big gator across the path, and they had gotten that far and decided to go no further and turn around. I, in all my wisdom, decided that I had already walked enough, and we were going to keep going. Okay. So we got to where the gator was, and he was not a little fellow. He was about 12 feet long, 12 or 13 feet long. And he, but he wasn't completely covering the path. That's very important to note in my favor. <laughs> His tail was curled around so that there was a gap of about three feet or more along the edge, from the edge of the path to where he lied. And I edged my way up. And uh, by the way, we have a video of this. Uh, someone on the other side took the video and sent it to us. And you may see it, but you may not forward it to anyone because I could still be subject to prosecution in the state of Florida. <laughs> I decided to walk past the gator. This guy's been asleep for an hour. There is no issue here. And as I took a step, almost behind him, his tail whipped around, and he was turned around in the opposite direction in about a second and a half. At which point, in spite of the difficulties that I was having walking at the time, I backpedaled rather rapidly. <laughs> as did everyone else in the vicinity. So the funniest thing about the video that was sent to my wife is that it's this nice video of this guy with a blue baseball cap walking up toward the gator, and then all of a sudden, it's like one of those disaster videos where the screen's going up and down like this. What's my point here? Well, I saw the gator, but there was a whole lot I didn't see, okay? And that's the point of our text this morning, and of next week, and the following. That there are things that we see, but we don't necessarily see them clearly. And we don't necessarily see them fully. And that, in fact, is really the case pretty consistently with our knowledge of God. We learn bits and pieces. We understand some with our minds. But has it penetrated and actually impacted us? And does it need, does that knowledge need to penetrate more deeply and impact us more fully. Paul prayed here in Ephesians 1 for a clear seeing of God and his blessings. I want to suggest to you that this was not a one-off prayer and everybody got it and then they didn't need it anymore. In fact, it was a regular prayer for this reason because of have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints. I do not cease giving thanks for you 
remembering you in my prayers. So there's a persistence about the prayers of the Apostle Paul. And I think particularly a persistence about this matter that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. An ongoing improvement of seeing is what you and I need. Now let me be clear here. I really believe you folks sitting under Kevin Haas's ministry have been well instructed. Yes, amen. But you see, that doesn't mean that what he has taught from this pulpit or in other places, any more than what I've taught in other pulpits and other places, has had its full effect in your heart. For the truth is that there are many pressures on us and we need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, brightened, so that what we've heard with our ears and understood with our minds actually begins to penetrate more deeply. Be careful, therefore, folks. This is my exhortation to you this morning. You'll hear it in a couple different forms. Be careful that you don't fall into the trap of thinking that because you've heard something and comprehended it with your mind, that therefore you have it. Because chances are very great that you don't. (laughs) That in fact you need to keep going back even to elementary things in order to lay hold of them. Uh, The working that Paul prayed for has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. And he prays in three areas, the first of which we will look at today. The hope of his calling. So, What is this hope that Paul had in mind? I I suspect most of you, maybe even many of the younger ones, already have a pretty good answer to that question. What is the hope that Paul had in mind? Let me contrast it, though, for you. It is not what we often have in mind when we speak of hope. Because when we speak of hope, what we often have in mind are the passing longings of our hearts Related to this life. I hoped this morning we wouldn't have an accident on the way here. I hoped that the car would work well. I hoped that we'd arrive in appropriate time so that I could get the microphone on and do other things that need to be done before I come up here to preach. Okay? Nothing wrong with those hopes. But they're not ultimate, are they? The prayer that the apostle prayed was that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The hope that Paul had in mind is the hope of eternal life that arises from the fact that God has called you to himself, that he sent his son to reconcile you to himself, that he has given you his spirit 
to continue to instruct you in the knowledge of himself. So this hope, you know, I want to look at some verses with you here. In contrast, in Ephesians 2, Paul says his readers once were separated from Christ without hope and without God in the world. But now they'd been brought near by the blood. In Ephesians 4, he speaks of there being one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all. One hope. There are lots of hopes in this world. And if we were in a different setting, I might go around the room and ask you to tell us all what's your hope. No, I won't do that. But what are the hopes that really drive you from day to day? What are the things that you long for the most in this life? Romans 15, 13 has these words, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Colossians 1, 27, What is the mystery long hidden but now revealed? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because even Christ in you is not the end of the story. Christ in you gives you the hope of glory. But that glory is yet in the future. Romans chapter 8 says you don't hope for what you already have. If you hope for what's present, then it's no hope at all. You hope for what's in the future. And so, what the scriptures are pointing us to here is the hope of glory. The hope of being in the presence of a living God. What's the mystery long hidden but now revealed? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Titus 2 tells us we are being trained to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where our real hope lies. To have our Lord Jesus Christ appear in glory and call us to himself. In Hebrews 10, the writer is writing about the need to continue on, to press on, to persist. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 1 John 3 I think we'll come to later, but I almost read it anyway. So I'm going to read it twice. First John 3, the author writes about the hope of seeing Jesus. And he says that 
Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. The hope of the return of Christ is a stimulus to pursue godliness. We need that. So, this hope has to do with something that's sure. Why? Because it's rooted in the sovereign choice of God, the redeeming work of the Son, the gift of the Holy Spirit to work in us. I, you know, I've prayed for you folks as I pray for myself. That there might be conviction that comes from the words of, of this text. That we would recognize where we've gone overboard with the hopes of this world. And as a result, neglected what's really our hope. Not focused our attention on it as we ought. Um, this hope rests on what Jesus has done. It's future-oriented, not primarily concerned with the affairs of this world, and yet not divorced from the affairs of this world or irrelevant to our lives here. Let's go back to verse 3 here in Ephesians 1 for a moment, because I think it will help us better understand our hope. Words that we can easily pass over. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know you've heard Ephesians before. Kevin told me it's a number of years ago since he preached through the book. Some of you will remember at least portions of that, I'm sure. What you have in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one sentence in the original. And it essentially says this, very brief summary. Bless God because he's blessed us by his sovereign working through the Son. Okay? Now, what's it mean to bless God? Well, in Bible talk, it's another way of speaking of praising him, thanking, worshiping him. Now, what does that have to do? I'm trying to make a connection here. The beginning of verse 15 says, For this reason... Well, that means Paul's thinking back on what he wrote in the first half of the chapter. Uh, remember, these are letters. They didn't have verses and chapter numbers. When the apostle sent the letter, it was just a, it was a letter, okay? And, uh, and he started the letter out with a greeting, very standard uh, approach in the first century writing, not only of Bible letters, but of all letters. So he's given a greeting in the first two verses. And then he's launched into this statement about how God has blessed us, therefore we should bless God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's that have to do with Ephesians 1.15 and following? Paul says, for this reason... There's a connection between what he's praying, what he records of his prayer 
for the church in Ephesus. And the grand statement of the blessing of God that's supposed to bring our blessing of him as a result. The connection, my friends, by hoping in God, by hoping for eternal life, by hoping for the return of Christ, by longing to see the Savior face to face, we confess the goodness of God before a dying world. We show that we're looking for something more, something more than this world has to offer. And you see the great danger confronting the church in this country, friends, in what is no doubt the most consumer-oriented culture in the history of the world. The great danger facing the church in this country is that we'll give way to the American way of simply longing for more stuff, of simply longing for more wonderful experiences, of longing for more money, more success, more of the stuff this world has to give. And the danger in that is that that's not the hope of the gospel. And when we live in such a way as to demonstrate that what we hope for is what this world can't offer, then we are testifying to the world around us that there's something better. Quite a few years ago now, I had a very foolish hope. <laughs> and I realized after a while, looking back, that it had sucked me in. It was the longing to win some big prize. Did you ever do that? Did you ever hope that somehow you'd come into a pile of money? And I thought about this, and I, I knew it wasn't ultimate. And I also knew very well that it was almost certainly not going to happen. <laughs> okay. But I thought about this, and then I had a plan for all the cool things. Not vacations and such, but all the cool things I was going to do to support missions. And, and uh, travel to see missionaries and, and help with great causes. Well, maybe that part of this whole thing wasn't so bad. But the fact is, I kept thinking about, in other words, having the hope of gaining some fortune that I could use in some cool way. I don't think that's what the hope of the gospel is about. Maybe you've never done anything quite that foolish fixing your attention on something like just gaining wealth. But that's what the world tells us we ought to do. Or maybe we'd just like enough money to make the house and car payment. And we're obsessed with that kind of success. Ultimately, it's not just our own 
growth or spirituality that this prayer is about. What it is about is the worship of our God. The answer to Paul's prayer in verses 15 and following, right through to the end of the chapter, the answer to his prayer fits exactly in with the language of chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If this prayer is answered by the Spirit of God, then God will be praised. And what a joy that would be to be engaged in that work. Not just here with your fine worship team and the wonderful music and the delight of being together, but day after day after day, our hopes fixed on the things that God says are really worthwhile. That we know the hope of his calling, that our longing for the return of Christ would be consuming. That when that meant that we had to let something else go that we had deemed important previously, that would be what our focus would be. We'd love to see the Lord Jesus face to face. We'd love to be in the presence of God in eternity. Now, dear friends, that's not going to come because you hear this sermon. May God use what I'm saying, but that's not what's going to transform you ultimately. It's the fact that the Spirit of God drives that deeply home into our hearts. We can know about it, but what I'm calling you to today is not simply to understand these words, but to begin to imitate that prayer. To seek the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go off notes here. It's probably a good thing to do. How long is it now? Well, it's over 50 years. Just about 50 years since I graduated from Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. Wonderful education. Godly men teaching the Word of God. I got to sit there day after day and hear and learn things about the scriptures, about the languages, about theology that were wonderful. But here's what I often heard. Not at Westminster, but in many circles, Christian circles. What I often heard from classmates, out of my own mouth, when we talked about people who focused on the gift of the Holy Spirit, what I often heard was criticism. You see, because we in Reformed circles are really pretty good at critiquing error. And so we would be ready to point out why it's not necessary to speak in tongues and why revelation had ceased and many other emphases of the charismatic movement. 
But the problem was, there didn't seem to be very much positive emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. You see? So we were very good at critique, but not so good at building a new structure in its place. It wasn't until much later that a text like this and many others in the New Testament started to hit home to me. That Jesus didn't send the Holy Spirit just for a holding action until he returned. He sent the Holy Spirit so that we might know God better. And knowing him better might live better might live in ways that showed his priorities in day-to-day life. And so, yes, I agree. You don't have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have some kind of ecstatic experience or, or any of the other things that are often emphasized in those circles. But what you do have to have is a deepening knowledge of God himself that will not come simply by reading the words and understanding them with your minds. That deeper knowledge of God will come as the Spirit of God works it in you. Using the truth of the Word, no question. It's not independent of the Scriptures, but it is absolutely necessary joined with the Scriptures. And unless we have and seek and long for and ask God to give that working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds, we will not have it. It's one of those wonderful gifts that when God says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus said that, you know. And asking for the work of the Holy Spirit is maybe at the top of the list (laughs) of what we should be seeking and understanding and longing for and growing from. Don't for a moment, folks, think that I am in any way criticizing the number of kingdom groups or Bible studies or gatherings that you have here, that we have here. but they must be joined with the work of the Holy Spirit for us to grasp the truth that we hear so that it takes deep root in our lives and transforms us. The transformation we're talking about today is the hope that comes with God's calling. It's the hope of seeing Christ of his returning, of our being gathered to him for eternity, of our living in the presence of God all our days. And that hope is way better than any of the lesser hopes that we might encounter or latch on to in this world. Let's see where I am in these notes. Ah, yes. I want to ask the question, 
and then help you to understand its importance. And we've touched on this, but, but I want to go further. Why is there such a need for the Holy Spirit's work? And my first answer is another question. Could we actually lose sight of the hope of salvation? Why, yes, we could. Maybe some of us here today have already. Why? Because we're weak. And we constantly need help from God. Start there, my friends. Start there with the acknowledgement, not how much you know, but how weak you are. How desperately needy you are if you are left to yourself. Don't try to put on a face to show others how strong you are, because you're not. The truth is, we are left to ourselves weak, and the devil and this world work against having the hope of the gospel. And I touched on Hebrews before, but I'll mention it again. The writer of Hebrews reminds his readers, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. He wouldn't say that unless there were a risk of not holding fast to that confession. It's not a theoretical statement. It's a very practical one. There is a risk of not holding on to the hope of our confession. And one of the risks is that we get so engaged in hoping for other things. That's my second answer to the question, why is there such a need for the Holy Spirit's work? Because when our hope for other things grows large, we turn those things into idols. We come to believe that without them, life is not worth living. And so we're committed to having what we're hoping for. Now let me mention some that in and of themselves are not bad. Please believe me. Like getting into the right school, getting the right job or that great house, being with the right people, getting the raise, taking the trip, getting good sleep, having less pain, having more free time. Those things in themselves are not wrong to hope for. But they can be turned into idols. And if they're turned into idols, then not only are we wickedly disobeying the command, have no other gods before me, we are having our hope diverted away from where it needs to be. Thirdly, and I've touched on this already, but very quickly, we easily substitute knowledge about God and his ways for truly knowing God and his ways. As a result, we might have our hope connected to what we know, not who we know. And so we need to have the eyes of our hearts continually enlightened. Hence the need to pray this prayer with some frequency 
which I believe is what the Apostle Paul did. He prayed it frequently for these believers because he understood what the devil and the cult surrounding culture combined with the weakness that's in all of us, what that combination could do. Fourthly, why is there such a need for the Holy Spirit's work? Because sometimes life is really hard. And we depend on our hopes regarding earthly things to get us through. You ever done that? I'm sure you have, because we all have. Now, why are the hard things, why do they come along? Well, I've become convinced, and this is really from some personal experience here, although it's not the ultimate uh, proof, but I've become convinced that God sends hard things into our lives to teach us to look to him in hope and to wean us away from the hopes of this world. Very short autobiographical statement here. I'm about 30 pounds lighter than I used to be. And those 30 pounds were pretty much all muscle in the upper body. I look in the mirror now and I see a skinny guy. (laughs) My wife keeps trying to remind me, no, you look great, Steve. But I know she's just being kind. Why is that a good thing? Because over a period of an ex- uh, over an extended period of time, I had more confidence in myself than was appropriate, and so God, in His great mercy, began to take away the things in which I put my confidence, and as. Many folks in their mid-70s and beyond know the memory isn't quite what it used to be. Uh, There was a time when I'd have preached this sermon without ever looking at my notes. Now, I'm so grateful I have notes (laughs) because I can't remember everything in the right order. But God sends difficulties Teach us to look to him in hope. Don't ever fall for the lie that somehow you're just being punished for what you did wrong. God's purposes are always richer than that for his children. You may be getting corrected for something you did wrong, disciplined, yes, But at the same time, that discipline's for your good. It's to draw you to him in a new way. It's to teach you humility and to learn to delight in him, to hope in what he says is worth hoping for, like the hope of his calling. And finally, we finally get back to 1 John 3 that I read a half hour ago. 
We need the Holy Spirit's work, and we need to pray for it. This one's harder to follow. The Holy Spirit is holy, you see. And it is his desire to honor the Lord Jesus. And that honoring of the Lord Jesus may come in many forms, but one is that we grow to be more like him. Okay? That when people look at us, they begin to recognize the character of Christ in us instead of that old man or woman that was there years before. Okay? Now, how does that happen? Well, one of the stimuli to becoming more like Christ is found in 1 John 3.3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. So as the Holy Spirit works to direct our attention away from the hopes of this life and to focus more on the hope of the return of Christ and seeing him face to face, that increase in that hope stimulates us to long to be more like Christ. And that's why, among other reasons, the Holy Spirit does it. Because he's holy. And he wants to make us holy. More holy. Like the Savior. Okay, so we started out with my silly story about the gator. But the point is, and next week I'll have a different story. (laughs) The point is that we can see without seeing completely. And we need to keep growing in our sight to see more and more clearly the things that are really important. Okay? So I invite you and I urge you and I guess it's fair to say I plead with you to ask God's help that you might more clearly see the hope of his calling. And my friend, if you're here today and you have no hope outside of what you hope for in this life, then I invite you to see your need of a Savior. To turn from sin and self-trust and repent. Turning to the Lord Jesus as your only hope. Not only for this life, but also for the life to come. Boys and girls, you may not have come to that place yet, even though you're being raised in homes where the Bible's believed. Ask God to help you. Ask God, the Holy Spirit, to open your eyes to see and believe. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the blessing of 
your word and for the privilege that we have of looking at it week after week. And we know, Father, that we need more than just knowledge in our heads. So continue your good work in and through us that you might be praised as a result of what you're accomplishing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite those of you